Good morning. You guys ready? Good to have you with us. Uh, by the way, that Dare You to Move uh, Phase 2 campaign will also help us to continue to do a good job at building out. So we'll talk to you more about it. It's what this series is all about. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 6, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament. Chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 20 through 36. This is our Faith in Finances series titled This Weekend, Money Woes. Money Woes. Let me set up this whole teaching series by saying this, you can tell a lot about people by how they spend their time and money. I want you to think about that just for a minute. I can tell a lot about you by how you spend your time and money or what you spend your time and money on effortlessly beyond your necessities. So if I were to look at your life, what would that tell me about what, about what you value? Nothing has shipwrecked more people's lives than money. And that shouldn't surprise us because the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That, that verse is often uh, misquoted. It's often misquoted like this. Money is the root of all kinds of evil. Actually, it's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's 1 Timothy 6.10. Now, this is what I want us to understand. This is part of the setup for this whole teaching series is that God is not a restrictor. A lot of people think that he's a restrictor. He's a liberator. He's not a restrictor. He's a liberator. And in his love and wisdom, gives instruction through his word on how our faith in him impacts our finances, bringing us amazing freedom even in economically hard times. I'm, I'm convinced of that. And uh, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if you know this, but uh, we're headed to a fiscal cliff. I don't know if you watch the news uh, in our government, and we're headed for a fiscal cliff of tax hikes and spending cuts that can throw us into another recession and market crash, unless the president and the Congress does something about that. Kind of nothing new. I mean, so I don't know what the future holds, but I know the one who holds the future. And so our trust is in Him. Our trust is in Him. And so regardless of what goes down, this is what's cool about God, is that God's promise to meet our needs is not predicated on the economy or government politics. In fact, uh, Philippians 4.19 Paul says, he's in a prison, and he says this, My God shall supply all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. All of your needs. And so, pretty amazing, amazing stuff. And so, that's kind of the setup of this series. We're going to watch God continue to meet our needs as He has here at Desert Breeze and many lives here, regardless of what goes down in the economy. So, we're looking at how our faith makes an impact on our finances, and what should our perspective be as it relates to our possession and our, and our money? Now, here's a thesis statement. You can see on your notes, let me read through this thesis statement, the summary statement of what we're going to talk about this morning. All of our money woes, in a few minutes I'll talk about what that means, I'll define that for you, but all of our money woes, both personally and culturally, are due to misplaced values, so we misplace our values, and the reason why we misplace our values is because we either don't know Christ or aren't living in the reality of the true wealth found in Him. 
And so that's where we're headed, kind of a thesis statement for this teaching this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment and we're going to dive into this teaching. This teaching basically is going to give us a contrast between the values of this world and the values of, of God's people. And we'll look at the, the distinction between those two. Let's pray. Father, we are delighted to be here today. We love you because you have an amazing, outrageous love for us. We pray this morning, Father God, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see more clearly the incomparable wealth we have in knowing you, the invaluable comfort of your presence, the, the incredible success to face anything, anything because you empower us with your, with your presence and the incalculable acclaim of being called your child. We thank you for that. We pray that through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, we would not be conformed to the values of this world, but be transformed into people, lives that mirror your values for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's take a look at this text. I'm going to read verses 20 through 36. You can follow along. And... Uh, Luke 6, starting at verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, this is Jesus, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So he's really spelled out right there the, uh, the values, God's values for us and his kingdom values. And then we move into now the world's value system. Verse 24, he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And then he goes back and kind of describes a little bit more of, of uh, God's values uh, for those that are followers of Jesus Christ. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But notice this, verses 35 and 36, but love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. He's just saying, hey, this mirrors God's attitude towards us. You're just being like 
the Father in heaven, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So, he kind of sums it up. He says, do you understand how big God's heart is for us? So, when you understand that and you live in the reality of it, it's just natural you're going to love your enemies. Yes, even your enemies. You're going to do good to your enemies. That, that's the extent of that. This is God's holy word to us this morning. So, here's what we've got. He's defining for us the world's kingdom values and then God's kingdom values. Now, when the Bible says the kingdom of God is coming, it means that King Jesus is coming. Now, whenever a king, president, coach, CEO comes, he brings... Him, he brings with him his way of doing things, his way of administration. You know, you get a new coach to a team, that coach brings in his way of doing things, his new administration, his new motivations, his priorities, his values. And so this text is making a contrast between those that are in the kingdom of God versus those that are in the kingdom of the world. So here's what's wonderful about this text is that you're going to be able to identify which kingdom you're a part of. Now, I understand that if you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, for a, for a while, you're going to still look like you're part of the kingdom of this world, but over time as you walk with Jesus, He's going to transform your life, and your life should look more and more like one who is in the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of this world. And so, let's, let's unpack this. And so, the world's kingdom values, and we saw that in verses 24 through 26. I give you cross-references. You're probably, if you're, if you're new to all of this, cross-references are different places in the Bible where it talks about the same topic that we're talking about here. For instance, in Luke 4, 1 through 13, Jesus was tempted three different areas that had to do with the world's values. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, that's the cross-reference there, talks about how these world's values, the value system of this world is passing away. And so you don't want to invest in those things because those things are going to be wiped out. Now, four times Jesus says, woe to you. He's not scolding. He's not condemning it's, this is not a curse, this is pity. He's saying this, and, and, and this is pity for people who are, are living this way. He's saying, in, in essence, he's saying, you have no idea what path you're on and where you're headed. So it's, it's a word of pity. Woe to you if you had an idea of what you're investing in and how that's going to collapse, how that's going to fall apart. And, and so that's what he's He's really saying, now, before we put the, the fill-in-the-blanks up there on the screen, there's one, two, three, four. This is what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the folks sitting next to you and see if they can come up with just one. You don't have to come up with all four. Well, I'll give you the answer to these. But just one of the world's values. This ought to be pretty easy for you. What are some of the things that the world values that would be inconsistent with what, what uh, the Bible teaches us? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. I'll just give you about 30 seconds and we'll give you the answers. Okay, you guys, did you guys get some? Sounds like you're answering them. I heard an answer right up here. Some good answers up here. So here they are. The first one, did you say, anybody say money or wealth? Wealth? Okay, you guys are right on. Verse 24, woe to you who are rich. So being rich, it, it isn't the only form of power, but it's one of the main ones. So you could also say power, 
heard some, I heard the, the word power out there. So wealth, riches, power. Here's the next one, comfort. 25, it says, woe to you who are full now. So you could say luxury, comfort, pursuit of the pleasures of life. You could have said any of those things. It really means to have your physical desires satisfied. And then uh, success, woe to you who laugh now. This idea here means gloating because you have won. Hey, look at me. Look how great I am. You know, I can run up and down a court and slam dunk a basketball and I get paid millions of dollars. Not me, but I'm just saying that that's, uh, that's, what, the, that's what the guys would say. You know, I can hit the ball really far and they pay me millions of dollars. Does that sound a little crazy? It sounds really weird, doesn't it? But that's the value system of our society and we, we boast, we gloat. Hey, look at me, look what I've accomplished. I'm so cool, you know. You know, I'm a firefighter paramedic. I probably shouldn't hammer firefighters, but uh, because we have a few that attend and, and even police officers. But, you know, there's a little bit of gloating. Look at, you know, we walk in on calls. Usually, uh, you know, everybody's lives are falling apart and we come in to rescue them. Woohoo! stand back. Paramedics are here. You know, so there's almost this kind of gloating that can happen. You know, police officers, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of different fields and different things that we do. We tend to, to gloat. It's... it's it means gloating because you have won or who you are. And then the last one is recognition. Woe to you when people speak well of you. This could be celebrity, acclaim, fame, popularity. Now, once you fill in the blanks, take a look up here. Because this is what you've got to understand. This is not a woe to those who have these things, but that these things are bottom line identities. There's nothing wrong with having these things. It's to build your identity on these things. That's what he's saying. There's a major difference here. So how do we know that that's what he means by that? Look at verse 24. He says, for you have received your consolation. The Greek word here is periklesis. It means deep consolation, uh, solace, comfort. It's the word Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. So in other words, he's saying, this is what you're living for. You're building your identity on this stuff. And, uh, and if you're living for these things, you are a member of the kingdom of this world, and eventually the things will, will disappoint you. There's an interesting uh, story found in Daniel. Daniel's a phenomenal book anyway in the Old Testament. But in the fifth chapter in that book, we have, uh, we have in, in Daniel this dying kingdom, and this King Belshazzar is... Uh, knows he's about to be conquered, and so he throws this crazy party where he's just celebrating his wealth and comfort and success and recognition. It's almost kind of like he's medicating him, himself. And I think it's where we get the idea of the writing on the wall because there's a writing on the wall. Does anybody know what the writing on the wall is? Your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. And sure enough, this king comes in and, and conquers him, and, and his days are numbered. It's almost like Jesus is saying, woe to you when you build your life on any of these things. Your days are numbered. That's what he's saying. Pretty wild. And uh, there's an interesting uh, quote in uh, Keller's book here, Counterfeit Gods. This is what he says, part of the introduction. He says, after the global economic crisis began in mid-2008, there followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation hanged himself in his basement. 
the chief executive of Sheldon Good and a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many, Europe's, many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost $1.4 billion of his client's money in Bernard Madoff's Ponzi scheme, slit his wrist and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish se uh, senior executive which HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his $1,000 a night, I think it's well over $1,000, yeah, $1,000 a night suite in Knightsbridge, London. When a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, which had bought his collapsed firm, he took a drug overdose and leapt from the 29th floor of his office building. A friend said this Bear Stearns thing broke his spirit. It was grimly reminiscent of the suicides in the wake of the 1929 stock market crash. So, so, there's, so when we have these things in our life and we lose these things, it's, it's appropriate to be sorrowful. But if you're in despair, it's evident that you have overly attached your heart and you're building your life on wealth, comfort, success, and, and recognition. I, I came across a quote here uh, just recently, Jim Carrey said, and I quote, I wish everyone could experience being rich and famous so they'd see it wasn't the answer to anything. So, so it says, I mean, we know that. I mean, if we just think a little bit, uh, money can buy a house but not a, a home. Yeah, you see, you know that. Money can buy companionship but not friends or true love. Uh, money can buy the so-called good life, but not eternal life. Fullness of life. Listen to me. Fullness of life has nothing to do with stuff. People with lots of stuff on the outside are often empty on the inside. Now, the formula that the Bible gives us is, and there's actually a book written by this title, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And uh, so, and, and really this is what, we're convinced that we are one purchase away from happiness because we are dogged by the billion dollar industry of commercialism and consumerism in America today. And so that's what drives our impulsive compulsive spending habits and our impulsive compulsive spending habits reveal that we are trying to find satisfaction in something smaller than Jesus. I'm, I'm looking for something to be for me what only Jesus can be for me. And, uh, and so, uh, let me uh, digress just a tad. Uh, let me give you my post-election comments and perspective. Okay? Would that be, would, you guys okay with that? This is going to be real brief because I think it goes along with this whole idea because I believe it, the, the most primary and perpetual problem of our life is looking for something to be for me what only Jesus can be for me or for us only what Jesus can be, be for us. We, we misplace our hope, faith, and love. Here's my comments, post, uh, post-election comments. When government is at its best, human society enjoys greater flourishing and peace. There's no doubt about it. But listen to me. Government is not and was never meant to be 
the answer to the world's problems. Never. Never. In fact, there's a song that echoes through my head from time to time back in the 70s. It goes like this. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. He's the answer to our world's problems. Not government. We want a good, good strong government. The problem is, is we put all of our faith, hope, and security in that, it's going to collapse on us. It's not going in a real healthy direction. And you guys know that. And so, so here's all I'm saying, is that if you look back in the first century, first century people faced a very oppressive government and a culture that was very sexually promiscuous. They violated women's rights. They killed babies. They discarded the sick and feeble. They persecuted Christians. And yet those Christians turned their world upside down, not through politics and government, but by making disciples of Jesus who made disciples of Jesus. Isn't that what God's called us to do? So the best thing that we can do is invest our time and our money into making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. Because that's what God's called us to do. Listen, our work's cut out for us. That's what Desert Breeze has always been about. You want to change the government? Make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation and that means even the changing of our government for the salvation of everyone who believes. So there's my two cents. Okay? Praise God. Praise God. So, maybe the election didn't go the way you wanted to. Maybe it did. I don't know. I know this. Our answer is in Jesus. Our answer is in, our, in Jesus. So we got to get to work. We got to, even more. If anything, this election should stir up within you greater urgency greater urgency to get the message of Jesus out to the world because that's what's going to ultimately help bring the changes that we so desperately need. This is what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the folks next to you. Let's just see that one of your friends came to you and was asking for some advice on their finances. What would be just one principle that you would give them to help them work on their finances? Maybe they're in debt. Maybe they're struggling. Maybe whatever. What would be one? I'm going to give you five real quick before we look at the values. I'm going to give you five of these, and we'll talk about this throughout this series off and on. But what would be one biblical principle that you would give them to help them work on their finances? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Real quick, and then I'll give you my answer. Okay, you guys giving good advice uh, to those sitting around you? You guys probably have some good answers. How many have ever gone through Dave Ramsey's uh, school class? We offer it here. Many of you have gone through it. How many have benefited from it? Yeah, probably everybody that has gone through it. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. You're going to get a lot of this from Dave Ramsey's class and stuff like that. But th these are biblical principles. Here's what I typically teach 
as it relates to finances. Uh, here's some biblical principles. Let's see if you uh, had one of these. One would be, and these are five biblical principles of, of wise financial uh, freedom, financial freedom, would be budget. You've got to have a budget. Budget is telling your money where it's going to go. And then there's a record keeping. So not only you need to uh, kind of tell your money where it's going to go, but you've got to keep records to see where it actually went, Okay. And then you've got to line it up with your budget to make sure, okay, oh, you know, I was spending money here and I shouldn't have. And you've got to keep record of every time you stop by Starbucks or, or, or wherever you stop by to buy that, you know, $2 drink or $3 drink or whatever. That adds up over time. So you've got to have budget record keeping, which is accounting, but you also have to have some self-control. How many would agree that that's probably pretty important too? But guess what? You'll never have any self-control unless you understand what we're talking about this morning, and that's true wealth. To have self-control so you don't have those impulsive, compulsive uh, spending habits, you've got to know what true wealth is. Because what drives it is this need to think that you're going to find the happiness in that next purchase or the spending of the money the way you spend it. But if you understand true wealth, you're going to be able to stop a lot of that crazy spending that goes on that we get ourselves in debt by. And so, so you got budget, record keeping, or accounting, self-control, true wealth, and then generosity. How many would agree with me that generosity is certainly a part of that process and a biblical principle that God blesses in that? But it's, it's just one of five. You've got to be operating in all of these. Now, let's look at this God's kingdom values. So we've gone from world's kingdom values, we, and, and now we're talking about God's kingdom values, verses 20 through uh, 23, talked about that in verses 27 through 36. The cross references here, Matthew 7, 24 through 27, talks about building our house on a rock. And that just means obeying God, listening to what he says, and then doing what he says. As opposed to someone that hears God's word and then doesn't apply it, it's like you're building your life on sand. So if you build your life on, you know God's word, but you're not living according to God's word, you're building a life on God on sand, and it's going to get wiped out by the storm. Philippians 4, 11 through 13 Paul is talking there about being content. And he says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. So that kind of goes along with this idea of God's value system. Now, you'll notice when Jesus said blessed, the word blessed means total fulfillment and complete well-being. Blessed are you when you're poor. Almost sounds like an oxymoron. Happy and total, you know, happy is, or total fulfillment and complete well-being is a person who's poor? And he says, blessed are you who are hungry. Now, Jesus isn't, isn't saying that Christians should seek these things, poverty, hunger, grief, persecution, any more than having wealth, comfort, success, and recognition is wrong. But what he's saying is, what are you living for? Are you living for the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God? A number of years ago, I was talking with my brother-in-law, and I was, I was kind of lamenting the fact that people... Ah, they're so casual in their church attendance and they're reading their Bible and praying. And, and I was talking to him a little bit and I said, why do you think people are so casual? In fact, if something comes up, they'd rather go someplace else rather than to come to church on a Sunday morning. And he said very profoundly, I didn't know about it, I didn't think it was very profound at the time until I looked back on it. But he said very profoundly, he says, well, it's because they don't value it. And I, I responded by saying, no, 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 they value it. They just don't show up. And he goes, no, no, they don't value it or they would show up. It was kind of like, and I kind of got into this argument, and then finally when I talked, I started thinking about it, I go, wait, 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 you're right. Because this is how it works. This is how we're wired up. The things we value, we prioritize, and the things we prioritize, we practice. 
So look at your practices. Look at where you spend your time and money effortlessly beyond the necessities of life, and it'll tell you right where your values are. See where you, where you spend. That. That's why it's good to keep a budget and then keep records and to kind of see where you can see where your values are. And I'm talking beyond necessities. As I understand, we've got to pay for houses, but that might tell you a little bit too. You might be buying too big of a house. A lot of people found that to be true. Or buying too big of a car for, for where you are financially. That's crazy. What drives that? What's going on? We're going to be talking about that through this series. Why are you so driven to feel like you have to drive that car or live in that home or make this kind of money? Why do you keep, you know, with each raise, you know, you keep uh, buying more stuff? Oh, that's more, more money. That Why are you doing that? What's going on? What is that telling you? And so it tells us a lot about our lives. It tells you our values. Um, theologian Michael Wilcox said this, in the life of God's people will be seen the reversal of values. God's people will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world says is desirable. So let me give you the world, what the, God's values are for us. In fact, the more you walk with Jesus, this is what's going to be true about you and I. Here's the first one. In God's kingdom, the humble are in and the proud are out. In God's kingdom, the humble are in, the proud are out. So what is humility? Humility is not a low view of yourself. It's an accurate view of yourself. And by the way, if you had an accurate view of yourself, you'd see your desperate need for God. You'd be desperate for God. And in that desperation for God, you would have a ferocious appetite for God. So if you don't have a ferocious appetite for God because you're out of touch of your desperation for God, and you're probably medicating yourself on wealth and success and comfort and all these other things. But just wait until those things are stripped away from you. <laughs> just a matter of time. And then all of a sudden you're going to realize, wait, 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 wait. I was putting all of my eggs in that basket. I was putting my hope, my love, my, my, you know, my faith in those things. And now they're stripped away. And, uh, and, and so... This humble, the humble are in and the proud are out. This, I mean, do you have a ferocious appetite for God? I'm telling you, the more you see the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is, the more you will have this crazy, ridiculous appetite for Him. I mean, when you study God's Word, do you encounter Him? When we worshiped, you know, through song earlier, as I talk about Him, does that stir something up within you? You want more of him. That's normal. That's healthy. That's part of the kingdom value, uh, God's kingdom value system. And, uh, and so it's, it's kind of interesting that when you compare this with uh, Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, this one says, blessed are you who are poor. And in the Sermon on the Mount, it says poor in spirit. But it just says poor. Why would he say that? By the way, you can't even enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you are spiritually poor, mourn, meek, and hunger for righteousness. So not only is he saying, this is the starting place for people that want to become Christians, but he's also saying oftentimes it's, it's not until we have these things knocked out from under us do we realize that we really do need him and we're in touch with our desperate, desperate need for God and then we have this ferocious appetite for him. So that's the first one. Here's the next one. So the humble are in, the proud are out. You have this ferocious appetite for God. The next one is in God's kingdom, you have perseverance because the loss of these things, wealth, comfort, success, and recognition, don't devastate you. <clears throat> As I said, Matthew 7, 24 through 27 talks about building your life upon a rock and when the storms blow. He doesn't say if the storms blow. 
He's saying it's inevitable. But because you've built your life upon the values of God's system, God's, God's government, God's kingdom, man, let the storms blow. Because you're not going to be blown away. But if you build your life on the, on the values of this world, when those things are threatened, blocked, or lost, so goes your heart. So goes your sense of well-being. Philippians 4, 11 through 13 talked about we can be content regardless of our circumstances. So, this is how you can tell which kingdom you're in. If you're in the world's kingdom and you lose wealth, comfort, success, and recognition, you're going to have a meltdown. But if you're in, in the kingdom of God, not only can you handle the loss of those things, but they can actually be a source of blessing. He says, blessed. What? I just lost my home, and you're telling me that's blessed? I just lost my job. I got, they had to, you know, you know, the economy, so they had to reduce the number of employees. And you're saying that's blessed? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I've heard people say this to me. I didn't realize that money or my job or my home was more than just a money, job, and home. And now that I've gone through what I've gone through, I have never felt his presence more. (laughs) And I would rather know him to the degree I know him and know his presence and his love instead of the money, the comfort, the success, and the acclaim of this world. I would rather have his presence than all the money, comfort, success, and acclaim of this world. And if it took me the loss of those things to get me here, bring it on. <laughs> that's what he says, and that's what uh, Paul says in the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians. That when I am weak, I, I glory in my weakness. I never really understood that. He said, I glory in my weakness. Why would he do that? I glory in my losses. Why? Because I am experiencing so much of God that it exceeds anything that I've ever lost before. And it's, it's amazing. I love it. The glory of God has never been more real to me. You guys tracking with me? Now, some of you are kind of looking at me like, are you sure? It, maybe you've never really experienced His presence like that. My prayer for you is that you would. Because then you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even take that second look at a lot of those things anymore. You wouldn't be drawn away by those things. It wouldn't, it wouldn't distract you from Him. And you'd even say, hey, God, if it takes the loss of these things, bring it on because I want more of you. Okay, so that's the, you know, perseverance because the loss of these things, wealth, comfort, success, and recognition don't devastate. Here's the next one. And, it really, and this is what's building. You can kind of see these are progressive here. So humble, ferocious appetite for God, perseverance, loss of those things don't, don't bother you because you're getting more of God in the midst of that. And then this creates godly character. Godly character is built on an identity that transcends the temporal. So it's a godly, godly character is built on an identity that transcends the temporal. Are you, guys, are you guys familiar with the story? It's found in Luke chapter 16. I'll let you read it on your own. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Anybody? Show of hands. Just a few of us. It's a crazy story. Lazarus and this rich man, uh, Lazarus goes to paradise, goes to heaven, <clears throat> Abraham's bosom, and uh, the rich man goes to hell. 
You can read about it. Boy, it's, it's, one, it's one of the reasons why we put these names up here because we don't want any of these folks, some 2,000 plus names of people that you put up here, the wall of names that we're praying for week in and week out of your family and friends. We don't want them to go to hell. We want them to know the fullness of life that Jesus came to give to us. So he talks about uh, this rich man going to hell and, and, and Lazarus going into paradise. And what's interesting about the story, and you can study it on your own, is that one has a proper name and the other doesn't. The other one's just known as a rich man. Why is that? Why is that? And, and Lazarus has a name. And here's what it means. It's one thing to be an artist, a parent, a, a, a rich man, a plumber, you know, an electrician. But when it is the main thing you are, your meaning, identity, and comfort or security, and if you lose it, then there is no you left. It is a kind of hell in your life. You've lost your identity. So, humble, perseverance, character, character that's, that's built on, I have a name. I'm known by the creator of the universe. The only eyes in the universe that matters. He knows me. He knows my name. My name is in the book of life. I mean, what more do you need? That's your identity. And uh, I have a relationship with him. And then this is going to produce compassion for the poor and marginalized and enemies. By the way, this does not mean, and when you read this, oftentimes I always have to preface this, is that if you're in an abusive situation, it doesn't mean you run back into your abuser's arms, okay? I just always have to preface that to make sure that you understand that. That means that uh, it's not loving to ever allow someone to sin against you. So you hold them accountable. It's the loving thing to do to hold them accountable. So I'm not, it's not ever saying that, but immediately I'll, when we read texts like this, a lot of times people that are, tend to be victimized, they kind of run back into those situations where they're victimized again. That's not what it's saying. In fact, the best thing for you sometimes and the most loving thing is to, is to withdraw from those situations and to have good, healthy boundaries. But you're going to do it with a, with a kind of an attitude that he's talking about with love for them and a desire for them to repent. You guys tracking with me? So that's why it's important when we read stuff like that. You know, a lot of times people that are in abusive situations will run back into those. And we're not saying that. Don't go there. Don't do that. But understand there's an attitude of forgiveness. It takes one to forgive, two to reconcile, and then it takes um, to reestablish trust. It takes a performance over time for that person to reestablish a trust in your life. So just, I just needed to preface that, need to do that. When we talk about this, so there is compassion for the poor and the marginalized and enemies and radical generosity with no strings attached is normal. And that's what I want to focus on just for a minute and then we're going to wrap it up. Here's what Jesus is saying in this. Christians will be so radically compassionate and generous and obviously it's coming out of this hunger and appetite for God, this humility, this perseverance, this amazing character that I'm known by God, I have a relationship with God, and you're going to have compassion and radical generosity. And you're going to be so radically compassionate and generous that it will be countercultural and turn heads. So let me ask you this. Are you known as an insanely compassionate and generous person? Would, let's just say that your accountant is not a Christian would they say, wow, you give a lot of money away? Would they say that? And they probably would if they're not a Christian, if, they, if you were giving like the Bible talks about giving. One of the things we teach here, is, which is a rule of thumb, is tithe. 
We also teach tithing, which is 10%, offerings over and above that, and then alms to the poor. My wife and I have practiced that since, you know, when we first met, I was practicing that because my parents taught me that. And that's been a principle of our lives. And that's what he's saying. He says, we're going to be so radically compassionate and generous, it'll be evident. And people will go, wow, that's amazing. Let me end with a story. We're going to prepare our hearts for communion this morning. <clears throat> this is from Lee Strobel's book, God's Outrageous Claims. He, pretty amazing story here in April 19... Uh, 92, when a 33-year-old victim of a heinous crime appeared in an Indiana courtroom the previous year, a 23-year-old man had broken into her apartment, shot her in the chest, struck her with a revolver, sexually assaulted her, then put a pillow over her head and pulled the trigger once more. Miraculously, she survived because her forearm blocked the bullet. The assailant was captured and convicted, and the victim was invited to speak at his uh, sentencing. And I'm sure that Judge Paula LaPassa expected her to angrily denounce this brutal defendant and indignantly demand the harshest possible penalty. But the victim was a Christian, and although she said the defendant needed to be incarcerated as punishment and to protect society, she also told the judge this, I'm not after vengeance or retribution. They won't change what's happened, and they'll only poison me. I want to help this man. He is mildly mentally challenged. He obviously needs help, and I want to make sure he gets that help for his own sake and so that he can be a free man again someday. I don't want him to suffer. I've suffered enough for the both of us. I want what's best for him. And with God's help, I want to forgive him. With that, tears began running down the judge's face. She actually broke down sobbing. And then Lee Strobel says here, I'll tell you what, I've covered scores of criminal cases as a legal affairs journalist, but I've never seen a judge weep in open court. When she regained her composure, Judge LaPassa said, the reason I'm crying is because of her forgiving nature. It's unusual for the victim of such a vicious crime to have such forgiving attitude. And then he goes on and writes, this unexpected attitude of the crime victim pointed the judge and defendant toward God as being the only possible motivator for her compassionate response. As A.M. Hunter said, to return evil for good is the devil's way. To return good for good is man's. To return good for evil is God's. Would you bow your head with me? Let's take a moment. We're going to prepare our hearts for communion this morning. And let me just pray. God, help us to see that... Uh, to the degree that we are seized by what it costs you to give to us true wealth, true comfort, true success, true recognition, is to the degree that we will be people of humility and perseverance and character and compassion and generosity. 
God, as we take communion this morning, we pray that this would be an opportunity to encounter you. We pray that you would set us free from the guilt of sh and shame of sins that we have committed as we confess those sins to you, but also set us free from the sins that have been committed against us. Lord, bring freedom to our lives so, God, that, that we can be people of, of compassion and radical generosity to the, to the folks in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Communion trays will be passed. Just grab, uh, they're, they're typically double cups, so just grab the double cup, hang on to it. I'll walk us through the process in just a few moments. I love communion. I mean, it's just a, it's a great time to remind ourselves of what our, what our Savior did for us. I mean, you can, when you begin to understand the implications of communion, which is a reminder of what Jesus did for us, you can begin to understand more clearly, love my enemy? You've got to be kidding. But then when we understand that while we were still sinners, we were enemies of God, He loved us. And when you understand that, to what degree He did that, it so floods your heart and life that it gives you that ability to... So if you don't have that ability to love your enemies, you just come back to the cross. All of our answers are found in Jesus, back at the cross. And so as we take communion here, this is what I would ask you to do. What sins that you have committed that just keep coming back and haunting and harassing you? You need to know Jesus died on the cross for all of your sins. It says, He said on the cross, it is finished, which means paid in full. Past, present, future. He sets us free from all of our sins. Just take that to Him and say, God, I... Help me to experience completely your forgiveness in my heart. And then what, what sins that have been committed against you that you need healing from? How do you know when you're kind of getting beyond that, uh, that place where those sins no longer haunt you or harass you, both sins you've committed and the sins that have been committed against you? It's when you know you're getting to that place of healing when when you no longer relive those, but you can recall those and actually rejoice in the fact that you are a trophy of God's grace and in His healing, cleansing uh, power to bring wholeness to your life. You begin to recognize, wow, God, you're using this in my life and you're bringing wholeness to my life. And I can recall those things, but I'm not reliving them anymore. And yet, I rejoice that, God, you are working in my life through this, and now you're going to use this in my life to touch other people's lives. And so it becomes a, you become a trophy of God's amazing grace. The wonder of the cross, the wonder of the cross is that in a single stroke, it satisfies both the love and justice of God. The love of God, yeah, that aspect of God, that's, that aspect of His nature that seeks our justification. He desires for us to know Him. But there's also that aspect of God, His justice, that, that demands payment for sins. And so in the cross, in one single stroke, you have both of those, that we had sin that separated us from God and so God doesn't hold that sin against us anymore because His Son, our Savior, died on that cross to, to clear the way, to, bri bridge, to bridge across this chasm of sin, bringing us into relationship with Him. It's amazing. So, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace, best definition of grace, 
You know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor, so that through His poverty we might become rich. Let's eat together in Jesus' name. That represents His broken body for us. And now let's drink together. That represents His shed blood. So God, thank You that in the cross, in a single stroke, it satisfies both Your love and Your justice. Thank You for the amazing wealth, comfort, success, recognition that we have in You. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? So here's my desire for you. We talked about God's grace. I just quoted uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, which is the best definition of grace, but here's part of that definition. This is what it means to us this morning as you leave here and as you live your life for Him throughout this week. It's 2 Corinthians 9, 8. This is it. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you.